Would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 4? Matthew chapter 4. Last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 3 together. And one of the things we saw towards the end of Matthew 3 was this beautiful blessing given to Jesus. Jesus as king has come and he came to John's baptism and said, it's necessary that I am baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness. And in the midst of that, we saw the heavens torn open and a voice come down from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we saw the spirit descend on Jesus. Great blessing came upon Jesus at his baptism. And now that same spirit that descended on him in Matthew 3, is going to lead him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Great testing is going to follow this great blessing. Before we read this text, there's some initial questions I think we should consider, some initial observations to make. One is the question that should pop out into our minds when we read Matthew 4. Let me read it for you just a sec. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If we read that carefully and think about the implications, we're left with the question, is God intending for Jesus to be tempted? But if we think about our Bible as a whole, that seems to contradict what we might know about God from James chapter 1, which is that God does not tempt anybody to evil, but rather that our own desires rise up within us And lead us into sin and death. So does God tempt or does he not? Is a question that we must answer before we look at this text as a whole. Because we need to know what's going on here. The answer is it's a little bit of both in this text. In the the Greek word there, pirazo, means to test or to tempt. And it really depends on who's doing it and the context. For example, this word is used repeatedly when the Jewish leaders come to Jesus to test him. They're not necessarily just trying to tempt him into sin. They're trying to test him to find out what's in him, who he is. The answer is that Satan is the one who tempts. He is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We see that over and over. He's called the tempter, for example, in verse 3. Satan is the one who tempts, but God in this text and throughout scripture tests his people. God is testing Jesus, even as Satan is tempting him. The difference is in the purpose. Satan is tempting Jesus. And what that means is Satan is trying to convince Jesus to do evil, to commit sin, to walk away from his father. And what Satan is trying to accomplish is to drive a wedge between this father and son. God has just declared, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Satan is attempting to drive a wedge in that, that will mark the rest of Christ's ministry and ultimately mar it. God's purpose, however, in all of this, God's purpose is to test Jesus's commitment to his father's will. To test whether Jesus will do the will of the Father. And by testing that, to reveal the kind of person that the Son of God is. And that's what we're going to get to see as we see Jesus victoriously triumph over Satan. By countering these temptations, by resisting these temptations. We'll see the kind of person the Son of God is. And he is glorious. 
This is a familiar drama to us as well. We have to understand that this is not the first time this has happened. This is the first time it's happening with the true Son of God. But if we look at this text and think about our scriptures as a whole, we see things like Jesus being led up into the wilderness. And we see things like in verse 2, Jesus fasting for 40 days. And we see Jesus' responses, which all come out of Deuteronomy 6 through 8. And what that leads us to understand is that what's happening here is a repeat or a recapitulation, we call it, a pattern of what has already happened to God's son Israel in the wilderness during the 40 years of wandering. In the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 8 tells us that God was testing his people to see whether they would obey his commands or not. And Deuteronomy 8 even tells us that God was disciplining them as a father disciplines his son. What we know from the history of Israel is that they utterly failed this test. They showed that they were not the kind of son that was needed to save the world. Instead, here in Matthew 4, we have the true son of God now come into the world incarnate. And he is being tested and he is going to achieve great victory through this testing. So in this story of the testing of the true son of God, we see a testimony of who Jesus is. And then we see an example set for us of how we too resist the devil. So let's, with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We're going to look at these temptations one by one. It's pretty easy to see on just a surface reading of this, right, that it divides into these three different temptations. And so we're going to look at them one by one and ask, what was Satan tempting Jesus with? The first one is in verses 2 to 4. And we see that the temptation first comes from hunger. Jesus is fasting to commune with his father for 40 days and 40 nights. And he is understandably hungry. These are real temptations. Jesus is really hungry. And Satan comes to this weak point and tempts him to turn these stones into bread. We might think just that this temptation is just about hunger and That it's just about, should he obey God or should he not? But the temptation, I think, runs deeper than food. It's a temptation that's about more than food. We see this from the way Satan approaches him in verse 3. He says, if you are the son of God, 
command these stones to become bread. We might be tempted to think of, if you are the son of God, to be Satan trying to question, like, are you or are you not the son of God? There's actually a way, there's not a way in English, but there's a way in Greek to communicate that through the sentence structure of whether Satan is actually questioning or whether he is assuming that this is true. And this is what's called a first-class conditional. He's assuming it's true. So one way we might think about it is, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. What Satan is not doing is he's not questioning whether Jesus is really the Son of God or not. What he's doing is trying to say, if you are the Son of God, this is how you should act. What does it mean, in other words, to be the Son of God? What Satan is doing is he's tempting Jesus to use his power and authority as the son of God to serve himself, right? If you are the son of God, you ought to be able to turn these stones into bread. So why don't you do it if you're so hungry? This is a temptation for Jesus to say, you know, I'm the son of God. Why on earth should I have to be hungry? This is a temptation for Jesus to assume that his felt needs must be met now and that the best way to do them is through his own personal freedom, through his own personal autonomy. In other words, rather than waiting on the Father to meet his needs, Satan is tempting Jesus to meet his own needs. That's what this temptation is really about. This is a temptation that was given to Israel in the wilderness. Jesus responds, it is written, and he references Deuteronomy 8.3, which is talking about the hungering that God's people felt in the wilderness and what God was doing by letting them hunger. Letting them hunger, he was trying to see whether they would obey his commands or not. So Jesus responds to this temptation towards self-autonomy with the lesson of manna in the wilderness. What happened was God was leading his people through the wilderness. And we read about this in Exodus 16. And there's no food in the wilderness. His people need some food. And so what does God do? We're very familiar with the story, right? He sends manna to them. How does he send it, though? He sends it in a pattern of six and one, right? Each day, you gather that daily bread. And then on the sixth day, you gather bread for today and tomorrow. Because tomorrow, there will be no bread. And what did God's people do? They gathered way more than they could eat in one day. They went out on the Sabbath and looked for bread, right? They did not trust the word of the Lord. They did not look to God. They started to look to the manna itself and their own ability to gather it. They sought to be self-sufficient or independent from God. And Jesus says the lesson that they ought to have learned, which we learned from Deuteronomy 3, that Jesus himself learned. It is written, verse 4 of Matthew 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The lesson that God was trying to teach his people through this, in other words, is that life comes from God. Life comes from God. This includes daily bread. Literally, their life in the wilderness came from God for 40 years. There was no way to survive without food. But Jesus knows and we ought to know from God's word that this is more about, about more than just food, right? Yes, we are to pray like Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. 
But we're also to have the kind of attitude that Christ does when Satan says, feed yourself. And Jesus responds essentially the same way he responds in John 4 to his disciples. I have food you don't know about. And what does he say? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. His food is to do the will of his father. Life comes from God. What Jesus shows us here is that to be the son of God means to live on every word that comes from God. That's what Jesus is doing. That's how he counters this temptation. Rather than being independent of God, he must live on everything that comes from the word of God. The second temptation, verse 5. Satan tempts Jesus to take a leap of faith. The temptation goes from the ordinary bread to the sacred God's word. Look at, look at the pattern here in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Notice, he took him, took him to the holy city, Jerusalem. He took him to the temple, what we might call the holy temple. And then what does he do? He tempts him with it is written. He tempts him with the holy scriptures. The temptations here are actually coming from what is sacred. They're actually coming from the word of God itself. This is remarkable. Satan tempts Jesus with the word of God. What Satan is doing is he's challenging Jesus. Do you really believe that you live on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Well, here's some words that come from the mouth of God. Are you going to live by them? Satan tempts him with these words. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. These are words from Psalm 91, a, word that, a psalm that's been great comfort to many people uh, during times of trials. And Satan throws this at Jesus and says, what are you going to do about it? And you might think, what's, how, how could this possibly be a temptation to Jesus? What's so tempting about throwing yourself off a building? That seems silly to me. The temptation in this case, I believe, is about faith and certainty. This temptation is about faith and certainty. And we can see that in Jesus' response. He says, in verse 7, Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If we trace that back, we get all the way to Deuteronomy 6. Verse 16, where that said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And we're told that this is about the testing that Israel did of God at the waters of Massa. In Exodus 17, Israel is wandering around. They've got manna now, they've got some food, but they're running out of water. And they start to grumble and complain and say, just like they did in Exodus 16, you only brought us up out of Egypt, God, in order to bring us into this wilderness and kill us. They accuse God of doing evil and wickedness. And they're said to be testing God by doing that. Ultimately, Moses strikes the rock and there's water given to God's people. And at the end of this narrative in Exodus 17, 7, a very interesting question is brought up. The word says that Israel tested the Lord by asking, is the Lord among us or is he not? Is God with us or is he not? What they were looking for is they were looking for proof 
that God was with them. Israel was wanting to walk not by faith, but by sight. And that's the temptation here for Jesus. Satan is saying, throw yourself off this building, and instead of dying, God will command his angels, and they will come and get you, because that's what it says in his word he will do. And you ought to prove it by doing this, testing God in this way. Satan is saying you should have visible evidence that God's word is true. And what better evidence than to be caught by an angel parachute and float safely to the ground or whatever. I think this would have been particularly tempting to Jesus because he has had to walk by faith and not by sight, right? He has to trust God's word come from the heavens, yes, but still God's word over him that he is truly the son of God and that he's not just crazy. It would be tempting to know that God is going to preserve him through the suffering that he knows is going to come as well. He knows there's going to be intense suffering in his life. And what better assurance than to have already experienced God stop you from falling to your death. But demanding this kind of certainty from God, what Satan is tempting Jesus to do, demanding this kind of certainty from God, is ultimately refusing to take him at his word. It's refusing to trust God. That's what was evil and wicked about testing God in the way that Israel did. It was refusal to believe the word of God. It was to say, I will trust you, but only after you've proven it with beyond a shadow of a doubt. Only after you've proven it to my satisfaction. Jesus responds with the lesson from the waters of Massa that Israel was supposed to learn. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The lesson that he learns and that he wants us to learn is that God's people must trust him, not test him. God's people must trust him, not test him. The devil has put forward this word that says, if this is true, then you ought to act this way. But the devil is a bad exegete of scripture. He is not a faithful reader of scripture because he doesn't read the whole counsel of God. Jesus does. And what he sees in the whole counsel of God is this command, do not test the Lord your God this way. Do not throw yourself from a building because his word says that his angels will bear you up. Trust that his word says that his angels will bear you up. And if you fall, trust that it will be true. Not only that, but Jesus, in considering the whole counsel of God, notices That what scripture has done over and over and over is reveal the very trustworthiness of God that the devil is calling into question. God doesn't need to prove it right now for Jesus because God has already proven it over and over and over and over. That's the lesson that Israel was supposed to know. Like, why would you demand that God prove that he's among you by giving you water in the desert when he's already given you manna from heaven? He's already led you through the Red Sea by parting it. He's already brought plagues on Egypt to deliver you. Why would you demand another sign? That's what we see in Matthew over and over, is the wicked crowds demand signs over and over of Jesus. They don't believe. It's never enough. It never proves it. When Jesus considers the whole counsel of God, he notes that God has already proven definitively that he is trustworthy. And so he ought not put God to the test this way. Rather, we see that to be the son of God means to trust God in this way. 
Satan continues, though, to tempt Jesus. Verse 8, he brings him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This is the peak of the temptation. Notice there's been a movement here. Jesus went down in the waters of the Jordan into baptism. And then he was brought up by the Spirit into the wilderness, which was actually higher geographically. And then he's brought to the high point of Jerusalem and the temple. And now he's brought to some unnamed mountain. A very high mountain, we're told. And I think we're told it this way to draw emphasis that this is the peak of the temptation. This is the, this is the Satan's money shot that he's going to try to make. And Satan says... All these I will give to you. This is verse 9. All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. What on earth would be tempting to Jesus about worshiping Satan? Nothing that I can think of. But if we dig a little deeper, I think we'll see. Satan offers him these kingdoms of the world and their glory. Think for a minute about Jesus' mission. Jesus is on a mission to save, right? We read about already that Jesus, his name is Jesus. He'll be Emmanuel, God with us. He'll name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Jesus is on this mission to save. And he is a king with a kingdom. And because... This mission is difficult. It's going to be very, very costly. He knows that there is a future of suffering that awaits him. Jesus reveals this slowly over time to his disciples because it's hard for them to grasp. But Jesus is born knowing that the shadow of the cross lays over his life. His mission is costly. It's going to lead to a crown of thorns, not a crown that rules kingdoms. It's going to lead to a cross. And what Satan offers him here is kingdoms and glory without suffering. He offers him a crown without a cross. He offers him to be exalted without any kind of humiliation. That had to have been tempting for Jesus. Satan is offering a shortcut to glory. And it's the low, low price of just bowing down and worshiping for a minute. Right? The low, low price of what Christians were called to just give a pinch of incense to Caesar. And all of this can be avoided. Why would you go through all this trouble, Jesus? Imagine the kind of good you could do if all these kingdoms were yours. It's a temptation for a crown without a cross. It's ultimately a temptation towards idolatry. Right? Satan offers Jesus the same thing idols do. Pseudo-success. Some form of success. Some form of exaltation. Some form of glory. At a cheap price. It's merely false worship. Merely reorienting of your heart. Away from God and towards someone or something else. Idols promise shortcuts. Control. Comfort. Quick results. All of these things Satan was offering to Jesus. Saying, all you have to do is this. Don't worry about all that cross stuff. Don't worry about all that son of man came to serve, not to be served. 
This could have been tempting for Jesus even because this is the kind of Messiah that the world wanted. Right? Israel wanted a, a reigning king who was conquering. And if Jesus controlled all the kingdoms of the earth, imagine his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It would have been something to behold. But Jesus knows the lessons that Israel was supposed to learn. He knows the lesson of Sinai. That as Israel is gathered around the mountain and Moses is up receiving the commandments, the people of Israel say, Moses has been gone a long time and we don't know where our God is. And so Aaron, you make us gods. And they make a golden calf and they worship the golden calf because they think that's going to deliver them. That's going to lead them into the promised land. This sows the seeds for them then later refusing to go up into the promised land because they refuse to trust God. And they end up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Idolatry shows that it does not actually lead to shortcuts. It actually causes them to be delayed in entering the promised land. And so Jesus says what Israel was supposed to know and remember He says in verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The Son of Man knows that he must worship God alone. Jesus, as he reflects on this, is able to see the emptiness of the promises of Satan. He's able to see that this glory that Satan offers is an earthly glory. It's not the kind of glory that Jesus receives when the Father glorifies him after the cross. He's able to see that these kingdoms are temporary kingdoms. We've seen that over and over as we've studied the book of Daniel together, that the kingdoms of the earth fall and new kingdoms rise up. And so even if Jesus is given all this authority, it's a temporary authority that is ultimately fruitless. Jesus has great love for the world and wants to accomplish his mission. And yet, because he worships God alone, the love that he has for the world is governed by the love that he has for his Father. So instead of taking this shortcut, he follows the long way around that the Father commands him to do, a long way through the valley of suffering. As Jesus chooses to worship God alone, he's saying yes to all the stuff that will follow. He's saying yes, ultimately, to a crown of thorns. And to a cross. He's saying yes to suffering before exaltation. And he shows us that to be the son of God, truly, it means that you must worship God alone. Through all of this, Jesus displays that he is the true son of God. The main point of this text, the main emphasis of this text, is that Jesus is shown to be the true son of God. By triumphing over the devil, through humbly obeying his father's will. Jesus is shown to be the true son of God. By triumphing over the devil, through humbly obeying his father's will. Jesus lives on every word that comes from his father. Jesus trusts the words of his father. And Jesus worships and serves his father alone. He obeys his father's will. And the result is victory. Verse 11, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus, as he walks through this trial, comes out the other end victorious, and the devil leaves. The devil obeys his word. Be gone, Satan. 
Through the rest of Matthew, the devil is shown to be weak and impotent, to be triumphed over. Demons cower before the Son of God, not the other way around. This temptation came on strong and powerful, and yet Jesus in his victory just dismisses the devil with the word. He is victorious in the devil obeying. And notice how else he is victorious. Angels came and were ministering to him. Ministering is not a, a terrible translation of that word, but it doesn't capture the full nuance of what it usually talks about, which is table service. It's this similar kind of word group to like what we would call deacons serving at tables in Acts 7. And here, angels are coming and ministering to him, likely feeding him. What was the promise held out by Satan? If you turn out these stones into bread, you will have your hunger satisfied. What does Jesus receive in obeying the Father's will and refusing to do that? His hunger is satisfied. What does Satan promise? He promises if you throw off yourself off this building, angels will come and rescue you. And Jesus refuses to test God that way and instead obeys him. And what does he receive? Angels come and rescue him from the wilderness, right? Angels come and minister to him. Jesus is victorious through doing what he preaches later in the Sermon on the Mount, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what happens? All of these things are added unto him, right? We see that right here, proof positive that what he preaches later is true. Jesus himself lives it. And it's this victory over Satan that launches Jesus into his ministry. It's this victory that marks his ministry and means that everything we see in Matthew, even if it looks like defeat, is already victory. Is already victory. So when we see the shape of the cross that looks like defeat, Jesus has already won. It's victory. And we can be confident of that. I want to think briefly about what this text then means for us. I mentioned the two ways we kind of want to think of this text. One is a testimony of who Jesus is, and one is an example of what Jesus has done and calls us to do. I want to think about that example portion first. Jesus is our example. We are tempted in similar ways to Jesus. Our temptations fall in these categories, right? Temptations towards being self-sufficient, being autonomous, from God. We don't like to live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We like to live on whatever we can secure for ourselves. We're tempted towards a demand for certainty. We're more like doubting Thomas, right? I will believe after I stick my fingers in his side and in his hands. We demand that God prove through visible certainty the things he has said to be true. Things that we struggle to believe, like we are united into the body of Christ. We can't really see that, and sometimes it doesn't feel like that's true, and we demand visible signs to show us and prove it. We would rather live with the certainty provided by angels literally rescuing us than we would to walk by faith. We're tempted like Jesus was to take shortcuts to success, to seek out what we think will lead to Happiness, glory, fulfillment, satisfaction, all of those kind of things. We don't want to trust that the long, slow path of humility, of suffering often, of 
trials, of persecution. We don't want to trust that that's the path that leads to ultimate happiness. We want to instead take whatever shortcuts our idols would offer us. We are tempted in similar ways to Jesus. And Jesus, in resisting those temptations, gives us an example of how we too ought to resist the devil. Notice when Jesus resists these temptations, he doesn't do so by some miraculous power that's outside of anything we have access to. Jesus does not rely on his divinity to resist these temptations and simply smite the devil where he stands. Right? What does Jesus rely on to resist these temptations? He relies on the sword of the spirit, which we know from Ephesians is the word of God, right? He relies on the sword of the spirit filled with the same spirit that he has given you and I. He wields the word of God against these temptations. Jesus trusts God's word spoken to him at his baptism, and he trusts God's will revealed in scripture. And that's the same way you and I resist the devil and he will flee, like James says. is to trust the word of God spoken over us in our baptism. And to trust God's will revealed in his scriptures. God has said definitively about you as you've turned to him and trusted in him. This is my child with whom I am well pleased. We talked last week about how Jesus in his baptism receives what we receive when we're baptized in union with him. These words of the Father, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And we've seen over and over how the scriptures reveal God's will to his people. We can trust that will. We can trust it because God who reveals it is trustworthy. However, friends, I don't want us to be confused And to think that the conclusion to what we ought to do in response to this is just read your Bible and pray more. We see in this text that to know the truth is not sufficient. Because who else besides Jesus in this text knows the truth? The devil. He, He quotes scripture. He knows it's true. He's not denying that Jesus is the son of God. He knows that's true. The difference... The difference is the devil knows what's true and hates it because he hates God. Jesus knows what's true and loves it because he loves God. It's not enough merely for us to just read our Bible and pray more. We need hearts that love the truth. We can't just know the truth. We have to love the truth. And without loving the truth, we can't really know the truth rightly. We must learn to love the truth and love the God of truth. In the victory that Jesus accomplishes in the Gospels, he displays the beauty of that truth to draw us in to love that truth. What I mean by that is as we see Jesus walk out this kind of obedient faith to the Father, we see the beauty of truths like God loved the world in this way. That he sent his only begotten son. We see the beauties of the truth that we confess even during our service. Like there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We see the beauties of the truths like Jesus' power is made perfect in our weakness. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We see the beauty of that truth and we're drawn in to love that truth because it comforts our soul and reveals God to us. 
Jesus displays the beauty of this truth. And we learn to see this beauty as we suffer like Jesus suffered. One of the best reflections on this text and the meaning of this text is found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says that although he was a son, he learned obedience. How? Through what he suffered. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. As Jesus suffered these temptations, as Jesus was tested this way by the Father, Jesus is learning obedience by practicing obedience. And it's the same kind of testing and trials that lead you and I to maturity. That's what James 1 is talking about in other places in Scripture. We learn to see the beauty of what Jesus has done, the beauty of the truth, as we are tested in trials. And Jesus, who went before us and endured such testing and is now able to help us, he himself shows us how to respond and how to see the beauty. Notice throughout the text, what is Satan constantly trying to get Jesus to do? He's trying to get him to look away from God. He's trying to get him to look to his own needs. I'm hungry. He's trying to get him to look to circumstances around him. I want visible proof. He's trying to get him to look to the end of his mission. Look at all this glory and all this kingdom can be yours. And what does Jesus constantly do? He constantly reorients his sight to God, right? He responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or he responds, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Or he responds, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus constantly reorients his eyes to God the Father. And that's what he teaches us to do. That's what Hebrews teaches us to do too, doesn't it? Hebrews 12, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. What ought we do? Lay aside every sin and wait. Run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We are called to keep our eyes on Jesus, and Jesus teaches us to do that as he himself resists these temptations. But the reality is, we still fail to do this, don't we? We can say all of these things and think through the reality of this and behold it and have our hearts drawn into it. And yet we know the likelihood is that later this week we will fail. And so if all we have is Jesus as an example, we're left just constantly trying to play catch up. But that's not all we have. That's not all we have. Not only is Jesus our example, but Jesus is what I'm going to call our champion. He is the one who fights for us, who fought for us, who achieved victory, and his victory becomes ours. This learning obedience that Jesus was doing in Matthew 4 was in preparation for an even greater obedience. Matthew 27, 39 to 40. I want to read that briefly for you. Matthew 27, 39 to 40. Jesus is on the cross, and we read this. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
The same temptation that Jesus endured in the wilderness. Use your authority to smite these mockers. Call on legions of angels to come and rescue you and establish your kingdom. Take the shortcut. It's not too late. You can avoid this. How tempting it must have been for Jesus to regret not taking the deal offered to him in the wilderness as he hung and suffered on the cross. And yet, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And what did he do? According to Philippians, he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. He became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And it's because of that obedience that the Father exalted him. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. The glory that Jesus holds is glory because he suffered. For you and for me. And it's by conquering this way that Jesus secures our salvation. It's also by conquering this way that Jesus himself is able to help us in the midst of our temptation. C.S. Lewis talks about it this way. He says, you find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by laying down in it. And what he's getting at in that quote, what he says in more of the paragraph is essentially that Jesus himself knows temptation like no other. Because someone who is tempted for five minutes and gives up does not know what it's like to be tempted for an hour or tempted for 20 hours or tempted for 40 days or tempted for 40 years. The one who never gave up knows what it's like to push against the wind all the way to the end. That's Jesus. He has been tempted and yet is without sin. Hebrews puts it this way. I want us to close on this thought. Hebrews four fourteen to 16. Friends, this is the hope we have. Since therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as the one who never laid down, who never gave in to the pull to separate yourself from the Father and to be the master of your own fate and to seek your own ends. You have secured for us what we could not possibly hope to secure on our own. And then, not only that, but you've given it to us. Free of cost, calling us to come and to rest in you. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, I pray that you would help each one of us to resist the devil, cling to the promise that he will flee from us, and yet to resist him knowing that our ground for resisting comes ultimately not from ourselves, but from you and from the victory that you have secured. Thank you for giving us that victory. Help us to walk in it, we pray. Amen.